Hey everyone. Okay, here we go. This is episode two of Your House. Um, thanks so much to everyone who tuned in last week for the first episode. Big thanks to Hayley Ayres for coming on the show. Uh, I'm not going to spend too long on this intro this week, um, mainly because I had such an epic chat with Liz Stringer, um, which you're about to hear shortly. Liz is uh, an incredible singer-songwriter from uh, the East Coast of Australia, who I met a few years ago when I was... Um, opening for a few of her shows uh, over in New South Wales and Victoria and wound up actually playing bass in her band for a short stint. Um, we do a bunch of folk festivals and we, we've, we've stayed good friends ever since. We try and catch up whenever our tours line up. Um, she's one third of Dyson Stringer Cloa, which is a, a super group with Mia Dyson and Jen Cloa. Um, they were actually midway through a national tour for their, their new album, um, when the coronavirus situation uh, put everything to a halt. And we found out um, yesterday, which was Saturday, when we were having the, the chat, that it was meant to be that same night that they were going to be playing Mojo's and Fremantle and I was going to be playing that show with them. So it's, uh, it's funny how that, that panned out. Um, it's Sunday night. Um, we, we got into a lot of cool stuff. We talked about writing songs, sobriety, touring, you know, um, all the time she's, she's been spending in the States and Canada, uh, Dyson Stringer Claw got to make a record in Chicago at Wilco's studio. We talked a lot about that. Wilco, one of my favorite bands. Um, anyway, all right, let's get on with it. There you are. I can hear you and I can see you. Can you hear me? Good. Okay. I can. Oh. I can see your ISO beard. <laughs> How's it going over there? Uh, it's all right. I've been writing lots of songs and, you know, doing a podcast. That's awesome. That's <laughs> Got to do something. I know. Yeah, I've been writing songs too. I've been like doing all these demos of like, I've got a hundred songs that I want to record, not to release, but just to have. Yeah, cool. And so I've done seven. Just for yourself. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's good to have something to do, you know. Are you in Melbourne or Tassie? I'm in Melbourne. Right, okay. I uh, saw so you were in Tassie for a little we were bit. In, yeah, we were in Hobart just the weekend before it all kind of went to shit. We were in Hobart and then we went – then we – the last gig was in Sydney. So, yeah, we flew back and just been here ever since. And I guess I'll be here till – I can go back to the States or Is Canada that, and then the States. Yeah. So I don't, fuck knows when that's going to be. <laughs> yeah. I know in Canada, you, you spend a lot of time there. What, what do you have going in the States at the moment? Well, well, I'm going to, I'm going to essentially move to Nashville. Cool. Just because I like it. And, um, I have a visa now and it was, it just felt like a good thing. Well, it does. It still does feel like a good thing to do, except that I can't, <laughs> I can't actually do it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I'm just going to go and spend, I don't know, maybe a couple of years there depending on – or at least the next year. Would that be basically just being immersed in th- that world and like doing your own stuff and, and touring and writing with other people? Yeah, th- those things basically. Like I just think um, it makes sense for someone like me. Nashville makes particular sense because there's so much session work as well. Yeah, and, um, true. And there's also not that many female session musicians. And also because I want to start doing stuff in the States and it just makes more sense being there than in Toronto for me now. So I just think it's a, I think it's going to be a good place for me to be as a musician. Yeah. Yeah. Do what are you doing? <laughs> what, are, what, uh, what are your plans? Well, we were going to go to LA next week. Uh <laughs> So, <laughs> so you're just gonna wait till the weekend and make a call, or yeah, we'll just we'll just vibe it, you know. <laughs> um, I don't. Um, WA's all all but seceded from the rest of Australia at this point, so yeah. I don't even know if I'm allowed to walk down my own street. Ah. So, <laughs> we we're gonna go to LA, and then I was maybe gonna go to London in June. Um, <laughs> all these ideas sound really hilarious now. Yeah, they do, don't they? <laughs> It's nuts. It's nuts. But yeah, for now, I don't know. Just writing, just trying to write heaps of heaps of songs at home. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a blessing and a curse, don't you think? Oh, it's. I'm actually really enjoy. I, I just think I'm. You know, if someone said today, like, this is going to be what's happening for the next nine months, I'd be like, okay, that's a bit fucked. You know. Yeah. 
But for a short term, even like a six month thing, I'm pretty, I'm in a good position. I'm pretty happy about it. Just personally, because I just have all this time, like completely uninterrupted time. And all of the FOMO is removed. So you don't. You're not missing out on anything. You're not missing out on anything. And you don't have to have that feeling of constantly being like, oh, I've got to keep pushing. I've got to do this. I've got to, I, I don't want to miss opportunities. There are no opportunities, you know, <laughs> like no one's doing anything. So it's, which, and I just feel like on an energetic level, it felt like the, it felt like mankind was kind of careering up to the edge of a cliff. And it just feels like this is a, something needed to happen. I don't know. I mean, I'm, and you know, obviously, I don't. I shouldn't have to qualify that by saying that I'm. I'm terrified, devastated people. People that have been affected by it, obviously. But as far as you know, wake up call. It's pretty profound. I mean, and and I'm lucky because I'm in Melbourne. I have. I can live. I can live with my brother rent free. I mean, I was in the middle of a tour. We lost like tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, I can imagine. You know, so that and I and and I like most other people have just lost their ability to earn money. So, you know, that's pretty fucked any way you slice it. But, (laughs) you know, still I'm, I'm personally okay. I have a a roof over my head and I have, I I have a stable place to live. I I live with my family here, which is great. I could have been in the States. I could have been in Canada. Um, and I'm, I'm not, and I'm grateful for that now, but, um, you know, I'm also well aware that I, I am pretty lucky. Like I know people, friends of mine that don't, that are in a much worse position. So, do you think the um, sudden rush of you know entertainers, uh, musicians, and the like suddenly taking all their gigs to live streams? Do you think that will that will grow into anything? Oh, uh, I not when people can go out and see gigs. Mm. I don't. I don't think. I mean, as a as a punter. I would much rather be somewhere than watch someone do a gig on the internet. I mean, just for the sound quality at the very least. I don't know. I mean, you know, I've been, uh, this is an interesting conversation. I mean, I think, I think what all, all that it proves and like I've been saying to um, friends of mine in my very philosophical manner that, you know, artists have been economically and socially marginalized forever. Mm. And if anyone is able to adapt to this, it's it's artists. And and really, without wandering off on a tangent straight away, so I think things have moved online out of necessity, but I don't think, unless there's some major shift in how we're allowed to gather as human beings, which once there's a vaccine, I don't think is going to really be an issue. I, I can't see why why it would ever be preferable to actually being in the room. Yeah, and virtually impossible to you know successfully monetize. On top of that, I imagine. Well, exactly. And, you know, this is the other thing. It's like I'm discussing with my managers at the moment how to continue to make an income as an artist. I think that artists are also inherently socialists generally. So, you know, we're, we're all aware that really not, well, not no one has money at the moment, except some people still do. Some people are still working. Are we though? I mean, we're the ones that like – refuse the comfort of, you know, signing up to work for someone else with perks and kind of just go out there flying our own flag on an ABN and just doing a rough. It's almost like we're the opposite of socialists sometimes. Well, socialists in the sense that we think that we, uh, um, we're, we're generous um, and, and inclusive in who gets to, to see and, and consume our art. True. Yeah, we're so pretty we happy to do it for free. We don't free. think so. Maybe egalitarian is probably a better word. Like we're not, we're not just like okay. If you've got a hundred bucks, you can come and see me. You can pay a hundred yeah. bucks to come and see me. Like we're we're, yeah. we're we're the first ones to be like, well, if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. We you're still welcome. You know what I mean? Whereas that's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that's not in every that's that's not in every business's sort of fiscal capabilities to do, to do that. But also. It just means that musicians don't make as much money because of it, you know? Yeah, we're either entrepreneurial socialists or we're just really shit capitalists. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I was talking to a friend today about how to, for example, in Melbourne, you know, there's a a bunch of pubs that pay guarantees for bands to play on Sundays, for example. So you go in and play two sets. Yeah. Um, I used to do it every Sunday and you get maybe 300 bucks and people get in for free. There's no cover charge, you know? And what the ethics of that is, for example, 
all the ethics or the yeah, I mean the that the people are getting they're getting their music for free and they're paying I don't even know what it is because I haven't drunk booze for so many years now, but you know, twelve bucks a pint or something. Mm. And yet they're in there listening to music for free and that being part of their experience and that being part of their expectation of what their experience is going to be when they're there. And whether that's uh, whether that is okay, you know? It's so hard to properly measure the value of music for some people, you know, yeah. like because, you know, if you're a publican, you're running a venue, you can have a band, you can have a DJ, or you can just put Spotify on the speakers. Exactly. And it's it's almost like a – I don't know if they would teach you in business how to measure the, the true, you know, value of how much – people in the room are enjoying, you know, that versus the other thing. Yeah. That's why a lot of venues kind of they'll get rid of bands and put in a DJ and they'll get rid of a DJ and just start playing, you know, Spotify and it'd be hard to kind of track just which had more of an effect on people coming down or not. Yeah. Um, well, that was the one thing I really enjoyed about all the Kill Devil shows around Europe was it was a lot of playing shows for retainers and people were just going out to see a band for free because yeah. it was, I guess – the band knew they were getting something, yeah, and it 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 showed that the I don't know it felt like the it made it made it seem like the venue actually um, uh, valued music more than say if they were just telling us to put on a door and only get get a little bit out of that. Well, that's know? why, and that's why I think it's important that it, that it, that each party is involved somehow. So it's like venues, punters, venues and punters are in it's necessary for them to pay the band as a collective, not just mm. one or the other. Cause I think it's too easy for venues to be like, well, yeah, if you want to come and sell tickets, that's fine. And have no kind of responsibility for it themselves and, or then pay guarantee and pumpers just come in and, and, and get it for nothing. Yeah. As well. And it, and it's such an, like an Australian thing to, um, yeah. if you are going to just pay bands retainers, yeah. and, um, chances are you're going to rely on gambling money to fund that, you know, with the totally. parties and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, there's a difficulty of like, for example, I'm in the position where for the last, I'd have to look at the tax returns, but the last probably t- since 2014, I've been yeah. living purely from music. So I'm a full-time professional musician. And so for me, it hasn't. It's no longer viable to go and do two sets in a pub for three hundred bucks. It's just not. It's just not a. I, I can't survive on that. Those kind of gigs anymore. No. So my, and so they kind of you know they've staggered each other. Like as I've become, it's been necessary to become full time because I've been playing more and more gigs. And with that, like the you know how the, the number of ticketed shows increases, blah blah blah. So that makes sense. But there are a lot of bands. Um, and a lot of musicians who are, are doing it part-time either because they want to or because they're in that kind of phase where they ca- haven't haven't quite sort of been able to take the other foot off the pier yet, which yeah. is where I was for many years, and rely on those sort of gigs. So it's, you know, it's difficult. Not everyone is at the same financial, is in the same financial position. So for me it, it means that, as I said, like we were mid-tour, that stopped <laughs> halfway through it. And it's fucked me. Like I don't have any, I don't have any other job, you know. And ninety percent of my revenue is through live, probably more than ninety percent. Particularly because I'm not in album cycle, so I'm not getting royalties. I'm not getting, I'm not getting album sales necessarily very much. Um, so it's you know, depending on where you are in the in the life cycle of 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 albums and all that sort of shit, it's it's really it's affecting people completely differently. You know, there's yeah. going to be some people that aren't. Um, able to get the job keeper thing because they, for whatever reason, last year didn't have a big earning year. So now, even though they're kind of fucked this year, they were even more fucked last year and they were relying on this year to, to be their bumper season, you know. But if it turns out that their tax return isn't that much different from last year, they're not going to get any support. So, it's you know, it's, it's really complicated. I, I think a lot of people are going to be thinking about whether they want to continue to to work as an as in whatever job they're doing when something like this happens, because you just go, okay, shit. What if this sort of thing happens again? Like, do I want to be in this position again? It's it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you're you're one of the few people I know that hammers the road as well. Like, you seem just wired for constantly playing live rather than I don't, I don't see you as someone that wants to do less of it. Is that would that be 
Correct. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of that's been out of necessity because that's how I make my money. Sure. And it's also, um, I mean, I think I the, last year I didn't, I was in Canada all of last year and I I didn't um, didn't play that many live shows. Probably, I don't really have a fan base in Canada and I was also, I got a job in a, in a touring band as a session guitar player, so I was on the road doing that. And I do, I mean, I, you know, for me, it's always been about performing, you know, or not perform, but like playing material live. And that's not, I understand that that's not the case for, for, for every musician. Some people, I have mates that hate being on the road, mm. but I generally, to be honest, had just have been doing it for so long that I think probably until the, until the last couple of years, I hadn't thought about whether or not I liked it. I just, that's what I was doing. Then you, know? <laughs> you go, oh shit, like, is it worth, I mean, I think, the next year I'm not going to be, aside from like post-coronavirus, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to be on the road full-time because I'm I'm waiting to release an album and, and then when that comes out I'll probably be out for ages. But, you know, I've never, I've always enjoyed, well, that's not true. I haven't always enjoyed playing live, but generally I, it's part of my constitution as a musician, absolutely. Yeah, totally, yeah. When you were talking about, you know, bands that haven't, yet been able to graduate i guess you could say from the you know three hundred dollars for two sets in the corner of a pub kind of thing that those exact gigs were kind of what made me take up djing on the side right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i found yeah. that I, w- I would go and i'd play shows that i loved and do my own stuff play to my own audience or support another artist yeah and there were those kind of gigs that weren't always all that conducive to earning cash because you'd be putting up all the money for promoting the show. You know, that's the weird, the weird feeling is if you sell out, sell out a room and you know, you've, you know, made less money than you had when you, before yes. you did the show. But then yes. I, me- I remember, um, I, I played with Ron Sexsmith, I think on the same tour that you, you and I would sort of, tag teaming the supports yeah 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 and i'd played one night in sydney for you know a couple hundred bucks and it was one of the most fun shows i'd played at that point with an amazing audience who listened and wanted to buy cds and and that was cool and then flew straight home to play you know three sets at a pub for way more money than i was getting at that gig in sydney but it was it was i was coming to the end of my tether of i've done maybe four or five years of you know uh particularly with one residency at, at a particular pub just every weekend doing those multiple sets and not really playing a lot of covers either yeah. like though I would get away with playing three sets of my own stuff mainly because yeah. I knew that people just weren't listening so yeah. I didn't I didn't see a point I'd just say oh this is a John Lennon song and just play my own song cuz and <laughs> yeah, I found I it I I would get to the end of three sets and I'd be kind of you know that's a lot of singing and someone, yeah, yeah. Point, someone pointed out to me a few years later, like, oh, you probably weren't getting a lot of oxygen in those three hours, which would have <laughs> added to your feelings about the matter. Um, but I just found it so, I don't know, just I felt defeated at the end of every gig because no, yeah. no one would care. You're just there. When I go out for a Sunday beer, I don't even like the, listening to some guy play acoustic tunes in the corner. I find it yeah, annoying. Yeah. So, so I felt like, why am I being the guy I don't like when I'm them? <laughs> And I just started buying loads of records and just telling people I was a DJ. And now, you know, I, I, I cart records around to pubs and it's slightly less than the, the three-hour set gigs. Yeah. But in terms of a, a side hustle, the actual like bread and butter stuff, it's way more enjoyable to me. And then it doesn't take the, uh, doesn't take the enjoyment out of playing my own stuff to people. You know, I'd, I'd much yeah. rather... You know, it kind totally. of takes the wind out of your And that's the, that's the name of the game, I think. And, that you know, that's why I do so much, why I have done so much. you pushed through. You didn't work. become a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd love, to, I'd love to be a DJ. It'd be so fun. But I don't, I, like, I mean, there was a combination of doing lots of, like, touring as a session player. And then also, you know, my last manager was great at like, I I did a lot of regional touring. So I didn't necessarily have to do that thing so much where I was in um, Melbourne, like doing those sort of gigs that you describe. I fucking Mm. hate their soul destroying. I I really understand that exactly what you're talking about. Um, But I would do, I'd play in all these communities like all over the country and they, you know, very often you get the whole town kind of coming together and doing, and no one knew who I was, but it wasn't, that wasn't the point for them. It was just like, oh, having a musician come through. So it's been, it's been a combination of being willing to be 
actually kind of on the road and all, like all over the country a lot, which mm. I've always really enjoyed. Um, and having a manager slash booker who was very creative in that sense and who got who got that that kind of aspect of it. And again, I don't, you know, I don't. It, that's not for everyone either. You know, there's a lot of, it can be quite taxing, particularly when I need to be on my own. And that's the other thing is like doing so much solo touring because, you know, any band tours that I did, which I, which I love and prefer doing would barely break even. So I was like, I was doing all these, you know, I would do five solo tours to feed, feed myself and put money in the bank and then afford to take a band out for one, you know? So there's been concessions. I certainly am not in a, or I feel like now I'm at the point where I can kind of, be a bit more discerning about how and when I tour in Australia, but that's only Australia, you know? So it's like when I go to the States, I'm going to need to do, I mean, the plan would be to to do as many support tours as possible and just get in front of people and just start from scratch in a way. So it's like, but again, like I know that there are some musicians that don't, everyone has a relationship with the live part of it and mine's always been, um, I'm very happy to do it. That's why I feel comfortable. And again, like doing it solo, I think is, I mean, you're great solo. I think some people, some people, um, don't, don't have confidence to do, to do stuff solo. Mm. Um, and of all the people that have said to me, like, Oh, I don't think I can do it. I think they can do it. Um, they just haven't, there's, it's a very different feeling doing it, doing a show with a band or even one other player than it is solo. Would you agree with that? It's so different. Yeah. I, I find um, I enjoy the the overall sound and the delivery of the songs much better when I have my band and we've been, you know, we're cooking, like we played a few shows in a row and it's starting yeah. to sound really good. But then I don't want to talk as much on the mic and, and don't want to, like I find it hard to get out of my own head, you know. Um, totally. But then when I play solo, you know, do house concerts and things, I can develop a rapport with the audience and then, you know, sometimes it turns into half stand-up, half half like playing yeah. songs. You know, you're just kind of bantering with people in the crowd and it's it's a whole different experience, which is when, yeah, I'm, I think that side of me would come out more if I'm just up there on my own, whereas when I'm with a part of a band, I kind of want to get lost in the band a bit more. Yeah, totally. I, you know? I agree with that. But then it's the hard part because then you've got people in your band saying, well, we should talk more, say something between songs, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and your mum as well. And you're like, you don't talk enough. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I know. You know, you know I think it is because I might start on some weird tangent or tell a story about a song. Um, like if I... I mean, I play a song about New York and I've been telling the same story before yeah, yeah, that yeah. song since I wrote it. And there's a difference between me being up there on my own telling a crowd who might not have heard that before versus yeah. me being up there with five other guys who've heard it way too many times. <laughs> no. And you just feel the vibrations of <laughs> boredom <laughs> and frustration just down your neck. Yeah, yeah, And you just kind of bail out on the story or like, you know, try yeah. and put a new spin on it, but it was better the first time and, and and then and then yeah the next gig you just stop talking yeah I totally I totally get that and then you're like oh no no like I've said I've written the set list I said we're playing this many songs so we're going to play them all and like I can't like just chat and do whatever I want I, I'm totally the same totally the same but the, and there's also there's like a musical freedom in being able to play stuff solo as well that I that I really like yeah and also there's a like for me. Band gigs are way more about guitar. I love, I love playing, getting to play electric with with a band because it's really fun. But, but well, it's a, it's a lot. It's very similar to you know the difference between being single and being in a relationship. You know, like with a with a band, you're constantly being reminded that you were supposed to let them know what's going on <laughs> and what you've got planned. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> that's so true, and that. That is, you know, feeling a bit like a mother, mother duck as well. Like, you know, just want to make sure everyone's got all their shit and, you know, there's, there's a simplicity to being on your own. But the other thing that I, that, that's challenging about it and the thing that I love, one of the things I love about Dyson Stringer Chloe is that when we go somewhere um, and arrive at a venue or whatever, we did a few house concerts early on and like I would always be arriving to that shit on my own and it's exhausting. Like, I'm pretty, I love 
people generally, but uh, mm. you know, when you when you're doing that four or five nights a week in towns all over the fucking place, it's so taxing personally. Whereas with you, if there's three of you and one of you's having a shit day or whatever it is, there's just so there's it's, it makes that stuff so much easier. Um, so it's I don't know. Look, it's I think it's an advantage to be able to do both. And and in fact, I don't know that you can survive just in Australia not being able to play solo at all because there's just not it's just too expensive to tour you know like unless you're getting massive fees all the time which most bands when they start out aren't you know it's hard it's hard yeah uh, it's it's interesting seeing um the evolution in solo artists as well Mm. you know because just playing your guitar and singing for, for unless you your songs and your voice are, are, you know, all you need. It's not, you know, it's like how do you compensate for the lack of a band sometimes? And yeah. I feel like we've maybe gotten to the end of the dreaded um, stomp box boom. And now, <laughs> now we're in. Don't speak too soon. <laughs> well, now we're in, you know, Ableton yes. backing track world, which is um, I've been, you know, trying trying things like that myself. Yeah. Um, I was in the, I was in the midst of devising something to do at your show at Mojo's, you know. Oh, shit. Um, uh, we were going to do, that was going to be tonight. Oh, wow. Cool. I actually woke up this morning and got I didn't realise that at that. all. <laughs> so, okay, right. Weird. Yeah. Well, isn't that serendipitous? Um, yeah, and you and that's right because you, you, you guys were playing – tonight and we were going to write some songs during the week i had my pl- i had somewhere to stay already i was all pumped yeah and then i was going to go home from perth monday back to melbourne okay and yeah. then we had one more festival and then i was going to go to nashville mid-may and then man <laughs> nashville's a lot of fun though isn't it would you would you be more of an east nashville type than a music row type oh yeah definitely i mean i just it's funny because i went I went there in February for a they, – they did a big East Nashville um, – put on this big Australian bushfire benefit. Yeah. That was organised by Bex and Geordie Lane and Claire Reynolds and a couple of other Aussies that live over there. And so Geordie, Geordie and Claire and Bex are three of my best friends. Um, and Geordie and I had just done them here, done two big shows in Melbourne. So they were like, oh, you should come over. And I was like, yeah. Ah, fuck it. Yeah, why not? You know, so I just went over there for like two weeks and I'd been to Nashville four or five times before that. And I, you know, I was like, oh, it's a cool town, but I I never really, I never really connected with it that closely. But I also never had a visa um, to be, you know, legally able to play there. And, you know, so I, I had just the, the best kind of 10 days, two weeks or whatever it was. It was awesome. And, the community's awesome. There's, it just feels like everyone's doing shit. Everyone's kind of, the people that I met were really excited about collaborations and happy for each other and everyone's playing each other's bands and like touring all the time. And it, it was, it was nice to be in a community where I didn't feel like um, I was the odd man out, which is how I feel a lot in Australia. And even in, you know, in Toronto in some ways, but in Nashville, it was like, oh, great. So this is just my, this is all these people are doing the job that I, that I do. And there was yeah. something really nice about it. So I was like, fuck it. I can stay here now. I can, you know, I can work here. I can, so I'll give it a crack. That's awesome. I've yeah. had, I've had the same like experience in, in other cities where you do finally f- find yourself around a little bubble of other artists that are kind of on the same path as you, Yeah, you know, cause it can. I, maybe the, I guess there's a lot more songwriters over east, but I find it in Perth I've always felt weirdly kind of on an outpost. Yeah, you know, there are a handful of songwriters around town, but we don't really you know talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? um, it's and then it, weirdly I had, the last time I had an experience like that was in Melbourne when I, I came over for a draft show and I, I stayed for an extra couple of days. Yeah, and I was staying with my my mates and they all had little studio setups in their rooms and they they were just 
everyone in that house was writing songs and if we were in one room they would grab the guitar and go into another and yeah um they were you know hanging out the back playing each other demos and and it just made me feel lazy and I found myself, you know, <laughs> bailing on hanging with them and running off into a little room myself and, you know, working on stuff and yeah, yeah, yeah. just this little, this boost of, you know, you, you kind of get jealous of how productive everyone else is being. Yeah, totally. And, and I think it, you know, wherever, wherever it is, wherever that gives you that feeling, it's probably, I mean, I'm in a position now where I don't right now where I don't have any massive ties, you know, I don't have a, I don't have kids. I don't have a partner at the moment. I don't, there's, there's, it's very easy for me to move around. So my instinct is just to follow that feeling. And if I go, if I get to Nashville and I spend six months there and it doesn't, it fizz, it fizzles out or it's not exactly what I want it to be, or I don't, I, you know, I don't, I, I lose that feeling then I can go somewhere else, you know, mm. but I think, um, everything aligned in a way that it was like, oh, this is, this would be a really good time to live there. And particularly with the record coming out next year at some point um, and wanting to, wanting to start making some kind of dent in the States, whatever that looks like. Um, it's like, why the fuck not? You know? Yeah. As, as you must know enough people in the States that can kind of, tell you what what they did and there's a few templates to follow I guess like you know Mia Dyson being a perfect example well yeah I mean I feel like I feel like the yeah there's 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 so much there's so much uh there's so many resources there's so many people um and there's a subculture for everything so you could you could find a pretty sizable audience over there well, exactly. That's the thing. And I, you know, I just think I just, um, recently signed with management again for the first time in, you know, a few years and it's really exciting. They're, they're legends and oh, it's like, are they there or Canada? They're here. They're in oh. Melbourne and, um, they are really, they have great connections in the States and, you know, for them, for me to be living there is really good for them. Um, so there's, I, I feel like I, you know, it just feels like the right thing to do and mm. I, not to sort of shit on Australia at all because I, you know, I have a really great, I've carved out a great thing here that I value very deeply. Um, and I think that, you know, it's easy to kind of just like, oh, Australia's too small. There's not, there's, you know, it's not to drive too far. I think for the size and the, and the, the, the geographical isolation, Australia does pretty well as a music industry. But, it is, you know, I just think it's a natural thing for people to want to do. And, in, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I lived in Germany when I was in my early 20s. I'd spent a few years away from Australia. But I think I, for a lot of musicians, they're doing what I'm doing in their 20s, you know. And I, for whatever reason, am starting, you know, I'm, I'm moving, moved to Canada when I was 37 and I'll be 40 by the time I get back to the States. You know, it's like that's quite late for well, it's later than, than some other people, you know, but, but for me, my life and my trajectory and my, my whole situation has panned out like this. And, um, I think if I had gone 10 years ago, it would have been a fucking disaster anyway, cause I was a disaster. So, you know, it's, it just, it's just all instinct at this point. Um, and I, and I'm really grateful that I have a career in Australia and that I can come back and play shows and, and, um, feel valued and, yeah. Even even if I don't buy certain sectors of the industry, everyone can say that. Everyone's got sectors of the industry that they feel ignored by. <laughs> How much does your like drive to write songs and what you write about play a part in you feeling like it's what you should be doing? Oh, massive. The thing that I keep coming back to, for better or for worse, is that this is the thing that I'm the best at doing. And it's also the thing that brings me the the most joy. So Mm. if I, if I can, um, and I look at it as, you know, spending, spending all of that sort of time, particularly without management. Now that I have management, I'm thankfully going to be able to handball some of these jobs that I hate doing onto them. That kind of grind self-management being the face of your own company, which I just fucking hate. I don't, I'm not going to have to do that anymore. So, but, but all of those jobs are there to facilitate the art, you know, and that's all how I've tried to look at it. Um, and I've come very close to going, okay, these, 
these scales are now uh, like totally out of balance. Mm. You know, I now I dislike this shit so much more than I love music, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is just testament to how shit this pile can be. But um, it's never it's, and I've had you know sat myself down and had big chats with myself, particularly over the last three or four years about whether I want to continue to do this, whether I need to get another job, whether I need to look at a different career, all that sort of stuff. But it's never gotten to the point really where every, every part of me is like, that's it, you know? Um, so, you know, without getting too philosophical, philosophical about it, I don't know what else the point of existence is for me personally, unless it's pursuing something and, and, getting better and better and better and stronger at something that you're already really um, you have so much instinct for and so much fluency in, you know, and that's what gets me excited is going to, you know, particularly America, why America is so great because you go to America and you see this level of musicianship that's just fucking mind blowing, you know, even the, even the, the, the kind of base level musicianship to me is so inspiring Um. And there's infinite amounts. There's ne- I'm never going to stop learning and just trying to like that, that appetite that I have for that musical learning is voracious and it's not, and that again outweighs any of the heartbreak and the, and the financial hardship and all the, the bullshit. And I could do it as a hobby, but as a hobby, but that to me is not, I, I don't, I just, I don't, I don't want to have anything in the way of me doing that all the time. Well, there was a time where it technically was a hobby. So you would just be repeating yourself if you did that, you know. Exactly. And it didn't work being a hobby because as I said, what happened was that I just did it more and more to the point where. You had to make a job out of it. I found um, one thing I've noticed is maybe, you know, a handful of years ago when I did a lot of various non-musical jobs uh, that. Uh, writing songs was constantly me not doing what I was supposed to be doing. Right. You know, and whereas now for me to get distracted by a song I want to write, that's actually me doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. So that 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 feels good. Yes, I'm totally. Not, not being naughty when I write a song. You know? Well, this is, a th- you know, for someone like you, I mean, you know, I got the sense immediately listening to your stuff and having since kind of, you know, worked with you in, in bands and stuff. That you're, you know, it makes absolute sense to me that that you should be a, a working musician. Like it's just, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a no-brainer for me. And I think. What's well, same know, with you? It's just the thing that makes most the most sense to me. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. That's the thing. You're so fluent in this in this language, and you know, like the the idea of people generally, you know, people. I imagine that people are the most fulfilled when they're pursuing not only their passion, but their, their kind of their vocation, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's an alignment in that. And again, getting it spiritual, but <laughs> there's an alignment that happens internally when you, when you're on the right path. And again, that's not to say that it's going to work out and, and everyone that is pursuing their passion is going to end up making a shitload of money and get famous. Mm. That's not what I'm saying, but there's a, there's an internal radar that, or compass that feels like it's pointing in the right direction when you're doing that. And I know for myself that regardless of all the, the, the treacherous bullshit that you have to put up with as a, as a professional artist, I would feel that feeling, that feeling of alignment is, is more crucial to my life than having a stable job and as, and a state, a steady income. Totally. Oh, isn't, is that a Bob Dylan quote? The, if you get up in the morning, go to bed at night and somewhere in the middle, you did exactly what you want to do. That's success. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, this, this home isolation is really, you know, f- uh, forcing my hand to write in the same environment over and over again. So it's yeah. a lot of, you know, I've got, um, I packed down my studio, brought some guitars up into our little apartment and um, d- there's like two ways of writing songs. There's, there's sitting on the couch writing the, on the acoustic guitar or the other one is sitting in front of the computer with you mm-hmm. know, Logic or Pro Tools or whatever you use. And what I've noticed about that way of writing is um, 
you know, over the last few years, a lot of my friends have been weirdly getting back into video games. I was never really into video games a lot as a kid, but, yeah. but I was halfway through working on a song the other day and I realised that this is a, this is like a video game to yes. me. Like I've got a blank screen and a bunch of sounds and I have to beat the boss, at yes. the end, which is basically writing a good hook. And, so, and in the same way, that's totally because I'm doing all these, all these, um, you know, just like doing MIDI drums for all these tracks. Yeah. And I can spend hours, hours staring, like, you know, aligning beats and shit, and then just look up and be like, all right, that's three or four hours. And then I go inside and my brother's in his dressing gown playing Batman on PlayStation or something, a la 1995. I'm like, <laughs> this is. I totally had the same revelation. What have you been using for your home music production? I'm just using GarageBand because my current laptop isn't isn't doesn't have enough RAM to run Logic mm-hmm. well, and um, so I'm just using that. I just have that and an interface and a little like a little short scale MIDI keyboard, and um, I'm hoping to get a laptop at some point. Let's just see if the government coughs up with JobKeeper or not. See if I can spend any money, but. Yeah, there is Job Seeker as well, you know. Well, I, I, I'm probably I've got to be entitled to one of them. Fuck's sake, if I can't. But yeah, I, we just got that last paycheck from Dyson String and Cola from those last gigs. So luckily, we snuck a few in. We could be in a worse position. And you know who I feel bad for are the people that have just bought a record out, or who had a big US tour they were about to do, or who were just about to hit the road and recoup all of these like you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cost. They're the fuckers I feel really bad for. So I certainly can all complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Do you think you would pick up where you left off with Dyson Stringer Chloe when this is, you know, whenever this is all over? Or would you move on to another No, project? we've decided to put a fork in it for now um, just because we all live in different places and um, we just feel like it was a natural end well, unnatural end to it. Um, so, yeah, and by October, we've already sort of got other plans and whatever. So we were, yeah, no, nah, that's it. So we'll start writing again and then maybe make a record next year and do it again yeah. in a couple of years. But none of us want to make it a perpetually ongoing thing, even pandemic styles. Yeah. Oh, I feel very lucky to have caught you in, at the Melbourne show when I did. That was a that was a great. I know night. it would have been so sick to do that gig tonight, but oh yeah, that that too, you know. Um, can can we talk about that record for a bit? Yes. So, how did you write it? If you all live in different places, so we did. We started in 2015 writing. We did. I was making an album in Portland, so everyone came to Portland. Mia lives in LA, and Jen was, I think, on tour or over there for some reason. And then we did we did a, ses- a session in LA. We did one in Melbourne when I was we were all there. And then the other times we just did it via Skype, mm. um, which was pretty good. Like we started doing this thing where we were like we just would handball ideas around. So we weren't we weren't necessarily like all on the computer playing together. We were like, oh, I've done the, I've done this bridge. I can't I can't think of any more lyrics. Can someone else do it? So we just like had a. It was just kind of like a spare parts folder and then we made songs out of it basically. And you made the record at Wilco studio. Yes. In Chicago. How the fuck did that happen? Well, Jen, so Tom Schick, who is their engineer, like kind of Jeff Tweedy's live-in engineer. um, He mixed Jen's most recent record. Hmm. Um, And then, yeah, we just asked them if we could, if, if he'd engineer it, like make this one for us. Um, and he was into it. So that, which is awesome. Cause they don't, so Paul, um, oh my God, I've gone totally blank. Something for Kate. Um, Paul Dempsey. Paul Dempsey had made a record there. Um, that Jen had heard. So she was like, I think we should do it at Wilco's studio. And we were like, fuck yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Tom was into it. And then we got Glenn Kochi from Wilco to play drums. Cause he was going to be around. And um, it was amazing. It was like the best, best recording experience, or just best musical experience of my life. It was just the studio was just nuts, you know. Um, and Jeff wasn't there; he was on the road, so we didn't meet him. We met his son. Spencer came in 
um, to grab something or whatever. And it's just like, you know, it's like, it's kind of what every, every musician dreams could be their, their studio. It's just full of literally hundreds of instruments all catalogued and, um, you know, just in rows and rows of really high, um, warehouse shelves and the studio itself is really dialed in. And Tom Schick, who's like, he doesn't seem old enough to have had the experience that he's had, but he's, he's from New York city originally and just worked with everyone. And it's just the funniest, coolest dude. Like, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty quick. I think we had eight days to record and mix it. So we kind of had to bang it out pretty fast, but it was, I just fucking loved it. I just loved it. I, I wish we'd spent a month in there at least. It was so cool. Wow. Was, was Tom involved mainly in an engineering sense or did he produce as well? He was engineering. So we, we co-produced it, but he, like, you know, he had, he had really good ideas about stuff and he was cool. Cause he wasn't, he wasn't pushy. He just like had, had good ideas and that, you know, the cool thing is that we'd be like, Oh, you know, I'm thinking of this kind of sound. And he knew the instruments that were in, cause there's, as I said, like hundreds and hundreds of instruments. Like, so he'd be like, Oh, I know like this cool pedal that you could use, or maybe you should try using the Mellotron or whatever, you know, whatever, just shit in there. We didn't even know was in there, you know, and wouldn't have thought of. So he was, he was really priceless in that, but yeah, officially just an engineering role. Yeah, I mean, I guess the band is three solo artists who've produced, you know, multiple records individually in the past. Yeah. How do you guys, how do the three of you kind of work around each other in a in a band setting? Well, um, I think the songs that we all, because we, we did bring kind of individual tracks in there. So, the, you know, the songs that, that we wrote individually, we, we had pretty clear ideas personally about how we wanted to do it. And then the other ones, I mean, it was pretty kind of peaceful cohesive process really like i i um you've been friends a really long time as well though yeah definitely and you know we had moments i mean as you know recording can be a lot of feels in the studio um and because there was a time pressure oh i never actually i was very zen about the time pressure probably until the last day and i was like fuck but you know i think i mean i'm sort of like I am the official MD of the band in that I like I would arrange vocal harmonies and stuff and and because I've had so much experience as a side player too mm. and Jen and me are kind of exclusively front people so I had a I had a bit more insight maybe into arrangements from second guitarist perspectives and BVs and and that sort of stuff um, but then, you know, having said that, Mia's amazing at drum arrangements and drum sounds and Jen's got a really great instinct. But it's like we all brought something, we all had our own strengths um, and, you know, I mean, ideally we would have had more time. I, there, there's stuff on there that I'm that I was, when we finished it I was like, eh, you know, <laughs> we, we got that done. But I, I didn't feel like, I think under the circumstances we made a, we made a great record but I, I think given the chance to have more time, I, I definitely would have done some some stuff differently. But I think you also, that's just what you say too, isn't it? And that's what you feel. Like, you know, I don't, I, I rarely come out of a recording experience going, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like perfect. I wouldn't change anything. It, it must have been a lot of joy to go out and play those shows while they lasted, I imagine. Yeah, it was great. We were so, we were so pumped about it um and again it's just having that equal distribution of everything like equal distribution of work equal distribution of responsibility of like of celebration and it's just made everything easier and better and you know we had dave williams who you know well um playing drums for us um who's a legend um and a and a great drummer and our friend Nigel Swift who was doing front of house for us. So we had a really good team and everyone just sort of like really loves each other and gets on great and um, it was really good. We were in a really good place with it um, and ticket sales were going great. You know, we really. <laughs> Opportunity knocks. <laughs> <laughs> I first heard about Dyson Stringer Cloa I think when 
Again, I think the Kill Devil Hills were playing downstairs at the factory oh, maybe yes. six yeah, years yeah, ago yeah. and you you were playing upstairs. Yeah. And, but it was mainly a, like a live touring venture, wasn't it? You didn't make a record. No, or- we made like an EP that was um, each a song of each of ours that we recorded together. Sure. Um, so what, how was it going from that would have been the last time you did Dyson Stringer Claw and that run and all the shows and all that and then yeah. so many years later you've all gone off and done all these other things, different records, Jen's got a label. Did you When you came back together and I guess maybe not so much the writing process because that would have felt like an old shoe but, you know, getting up on stage in front of crowds again, mm. you might have seen the result of all the, the years in between on your individual careers. Yeah, definitely. It was, I remember saying after our first gig or whatever, like we are all clearly better musicians than we were six years ago. Mm. Um, yeah, it was really, it was really great. And not, not just like just the way that that the whole thing was handled. So like as musicians, we were much more experienced and performers, but also as like as self-managed artists and, um, you know, business people, we were, we had so much more experience collectively under the belt and, I like again. I personally was in a much better place um, than I was in 2013, um, and I think without my, without without me having sorted out some of that shit, I don't think we could have done the project um, this time. Because I just, I just, my mental health, you know, very he- heavy drinking, all that kind of stuff was was. I just don't think it would have worked. So we were all really on the same page in our lives as well. Um, and it was, a, it was, it was great. It was a really nice marker for, I think for all of us to be like, you know, we have, cause I think it's easy to just go, you know, just have your head down and not think about what you've learned and that you're progressing. But it, it was very clear early on that we, we had all progressed a lot. So yeah, mm. that was awesome. Um, that stuff you were talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, where you were, so many years ago and your mental health and stuff. Do, do you, do you write about that a lot now? Or? Yeah, I do. Um, this record that I'm, that's going to come out when, when the pando's over, um, <laughs> is all about that. Um, and which is a, you know, which is a marker in itself. Cause I, d- I never wrote really personal stuff cause I didn't have access to any of that stuff. And I think it's, I, I, you, so you didn't write much personal stuff before? Not really. Not, not, not in a real sense. You know, stuff that was from a distance, I guess, kind of Fiction reflective. Or, yeah, lots of stories about other people, lots of stories that I'd heard, lots of stories that I made up. Um, but I started writing much more personal shit and the, and the record that I, that's going to come out is is completely autobiographical basically, which is, and it's about this big period of change over the last three or four years. And which has been, you know, it's necessary for me to metabolize a lot of the change. And, um, but also because I had, you know, cause I stopped drinking and drugging and doing all that stuff, having greater access to myself and to my own feelings, um, made it possible to write like that. And I, I feel like it's, um, you know, I was worried, I think when I stopped drinking that, I, that, you know, the, the old adage of being the genie, the, like the genius, um, alcoholic musician, I thought that I was scared that if I stopped drinking, I'd lose my creativity. And, and what I realized is, um, I, it was actually stifling it forever and that um, I'm a much better artist without drinking drugs. Mm. So, yeah, I, you know, I think I, I just write from just a different place now because I can access it better. And because I think, you know, if you, have a, if you have a heavy drug or drinking problem, the, the main aim of the game is to not be in, in contact with any of your feelings. That's why you do it, you know whether or not it's based on the pretense of having a good time, it's because you don't, you don't, or you can't look at certain um, huge wells of feeling for very good reason. Most of the time. Um, So once you remove that, um, it's scary because it, 
you're exposed, you have nowhere to hide from it. Mm. But it's also very liberating because you, um, once you feel it and kind of get in there and face it, it it it, it starts to control you less, and then also um, opens up this whole other part of you where you can connect with yourself and with other people a lot more. So I think as a as an artist and particularly a songwriter, I think that's been that's been um, a, a absolute game changer for me being able to do that. Yeah, you, you can rely a lot on, you know, the morning after being like this, you know, magic well of like lyrics that just fall out of the sky yeah. you know, when you're coming down and you think, I don't want to lose that. Yeah. That's my most important appointment of the day. Exactly. But- or that kind of like, oh, you know, I think it's important to be tortured and fucked up and it's like you can still be tortured and fucked up you just don't drink as much. You don't drink yeah, at all, exactly. You know? Don't worry. You're still going to be a nut bar. You just <laughs> won't be a drunk nut bar. Touring's a lot easier, not being a pisshead, oh, so much easier. And, I, like, performing is too. Like, I used to, by the end of every gig, I'd be drunk. I wasn't drunk necessarily when I got on stage, but by the end of it, I would be. And um, It's hard to do when you're singing as well. To oh, it's such drink. hard work. It, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I was... I was good at it (laughs) (laughs) in the set, like, but it's so, it's just part, so much part of your routine. Um, and again, it's all this kind of unthinking stuff that you do. Um, that I, most, I think, I think a lot of, I think it's a very common situation to kind of get to your mid thirties and be like, what the fuck just in general, you know, like, what am I doing? It's like you don't, you just don't think about it. And then suddenly you're like, hang on. I mean, it never occurred to me to, to stop drinking. Never occurred, never occurred to me that, that that it might be, because that's just what I did. That's what everyone else did around me. Mm. Um, that's like quite unique in your case, right? Because a lot of people carry around with them a constant guilt, like a feeling like, oh, I should stop drinking, but they don't. But you didn't feel that at all. I didn't, no. I, to me it was so... I used to look at people that didn't drink and just think, I just felt so sorry for them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's only, uh, you know, I think, you know, that was the first, drinking was the first domino to fall and still, and I think probably forever, it's like someone, I heard or read whatever it was that someone saying, saying that being an adult is just undoing all of the patterns that you put in place when you're younger. Mm. And that's true. Like I, there's so many ways of it that I live now um, and internally how I live internally now where I'm like, I have a choice in how I do this. I don't just have to be again, like driven by um, experiences from when I was younger or, you know, things that happened when I, in my family, when I was a kid or whatever. Um, I have a choice about how I treat myself uh, and how I respond to stuff and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a revelation. I just think we're, we're kind of all programmed, not in a sinister way, but we're all, you know, we're all brought up to kind of not necessarily, um, question or self, um, self-analyze behaviors. Cause I mean, my, I mean, my parents, for example, my parents are probably significantly older than yours. Dad's almost, well, dad's 75. Um, and that generation was just like, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't think about it. And so that's inevitably, we learn that from our parents too. And, you know, I mean, this is a sort of waffly thing, but really the point is as a songwriter, when you're drawing on all of these places of the, the common human experience and being able to somehow articulate um, nuances in feeling and, um, and experience and all that stuff, it, it's, it's, I'm realizing now really vital to actually be able to be in touch with those things. Mm. Um, it was a purely kind of, I just felt like a spectator in the stands for, for ages and not in a pleasant way, you know, just like, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been massive. And that's why I mean, like, I think it, when I was 30, I was, you know, I had, I was a good songwriter and a good musician in a, in a sense, but I think I'm really glad that I didn't that I'm really feeling like I'm coming into my own now, even in my career, because I'm a much better musician and songwriter now than I was even a few years ago, you know? So I'm glad I haven't had a hit because... (laughs) Didn't want one. Didn't want one. (laughs) (laughs) 
do do you do you do you get up in the morning and think I'm going to write about that stuff now? I'm going to write a more personal record, or do do you find these little lyrical zingers just fall out of the sky into your head? And um, I don't. I think sometimes if something's been consuming me, maybe as a kind of as a way of um, getting it out of my head, maybe I'll sit down with a guitar and work it out. But it's not. Sometimes it happens kind of you know accidentally where I'm writing something that I'm like, oh, hang on, I'm writing about this or, you know. It's so funny talking about songwriting because you just, I just feel like people just, I feel like I sound like a wanker when I'm talking about it because it's so. Um, That's the Australian, you know, feeling, you know, like you're on an right. thing. But it's also the kind of thing, oh, I don't know, like sometimes I just write something and then I realise that I'm writing it about myself. You know, it's like I just sound like such a tool but it is. It's such a it's such a sort of an opaque process that you that you just kind of go, um, like, so are these songs that I'm writing now. I'm finishing all of these ideas, and I wrote you know I was writing this song the other day, and I was like, that was a thing where I was like, oh, I'm just gonna like write, I'm just gonna write you know kind of stream of consciousness rhyming you know which I usually do and then I kind of go back and make it good, you know. But I, I did read it back and go, well, that's interesting. That's an interesting insight into what's going on in my brain right now. Mm. Like you're sort of tapping into the, the subconscious or something. So that's generally – I certainly didn't go like, right, this record's going to be about me um, getting my shit together at all. But because it was all-consuming, that's what, that's what I was doing and spending all of my energy and emotional – you know, wherewithal on, that's what ended up coming out of me. Yeah, yeah. Do you, yeah. are you, are you typing stuff and f- thinking of how to sing it later or are you, do you a lot of just singing random words and finding words that suit the vowel sounds? And I do that. I sing, I usually sing, I come up with some kind of guitar progression and a melody and then, um, it's usually like probably the hook of the song or the chorus or, um, and then I, I kind of Tetris words, phrases in around it. Mm. And I actually really enjoy that process, like having a set of syllables and needing to put a phrase in there and going like, this is the, this is the number of syllables I have. And I've gotten way more into like, um, what do you, what do you call it? Like, um, that, that much more structured way, like almost kind of, um, rapping, in singing yep. mm-hmm. so that you're like I'm playing around with phrasing a lot more and I'm being a lot more kind of militant about how much about how many syllables and where they go and whether it's whether it makes it like an interesting phrase um rhythmically whereas before it was I was I was sort of like oh that'll do you know <laughs> <laughs> that's just what came out but um now I'm like I find that stuff really fun and that's yeah. what I say to songwriting students that I've had in the past is like, you know, songwriting is such an interesting medium because you have a finite amount of space. Hmm. And so every word has to fight for its, its right to be there. Um, every single word that you put in a song needs to, needs to be worth it because, uh, you know, the, you, you, like you – and not that I always nail this, but I try and say to like, you know – songwriting students you just got to draft and draft and draft and draft until there's no more fat you can cut off it and there's no better word that you can replace anything here with and that's the fun part like the hard part is kind of coming up with a skeleton for me and then the fun part is just trying to tighten it up as much as possible totally yeah i i i usually try and i mean i sound i sound like an old man when i do it when i you know have songwriting classes with the kids but there's usually there's usually a few minutes dedicated to trying to convince them that mama mia is the most perfect pop song ever written <laughs> there's no fat on that song you can't lose a note or there's no lyric or chord that could be left out every section is its own chorus there's no verse yeah. there's there's just it's just chorus after chorus after chorus in terms well, of Emma and you know ELO and, the Beatles, and the even thing. i mean i would argue bands like teenage fan club and Oasis that are kind of writing these um, rock and roll songs, but they're pop songs essentially. Like, like there's there's something I, there's something about that sort of rambling rock and roll stuff that's like, that's a little bit less 
has a little bit less form or whatever that I love. But I really love, like, to my musical brain, there's something so satisfying. It's like seeing, it's like seeing someone finish a Rubik's cube or something. It's like it just looks better when all the <laughs> things are in there on that side, you know. Totally. And I always found that those with those two bands, you know, even that whole that really simplistic you know, jangly chords, just all downstrokes. Yeah. I've, I've found it uh, more endearing just how how little amount of showing off was involved in the delivery of the song. Oh, totally. You know, there's no, there's no, all. I mean, Oasis, all their swagger was off stage. You know, yeah, when, yeah, they, yeah. when they do interviews, they're like Olympic athletes at, you know, of of showmanship. <laughs> But in music, they're just just it's all about the song, and even the, yeah. the the melodies would just note to another note. Not a lot of no acrobats, no acrobatic, you know. And even Noel's guitar solos were like that, like so so minimalist and so tasty. Like there was none of this kind of slash style fucking. He was just like three or four notes, just really driven. Yeah, which he always used to do that that classic, you know, fake modesty thing of like, oh, I only play because I'm I'm not a very good guitar player. That's why I play like that. But yeah, you, yeah. you can tell it's a stylistic thing that he took from, you know, the Stone Roses and yeah. Johnny Marr. That that you know, they're almost like they're like chiming, chime chiming bell sort of melodies. Yeah, totally. On the guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Love that shit. I. Oh. <laughs> Um, Nelson, I'm going to have to go. That's totally cool. That's a good spot to wrap things up. Thanks so much. Oh, no worries. It's so so good to have a chat. Yeah, cheers. Um, We're having a little um, Dyson Stringer Clower Zoom breakup party tonight. Oh, cool. So you, me and Jen and Mia and Dave and Nige, you know, have have a Zoom, get Uber Eats or get Uber Eats and have a Zoom party. What if someone's Uber Eats rocks up at a different time to everyone else's? Do you have to watch uh, I don't the rest know. of the I mean, these are the challenges of our time. <sighs> okay. Well, I look forward to hearing how that goes. Please say hello to everyone I will. For me. I will. All right, mate. I'll talk to you Thanks, soon. Thanks, Liz. See you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. We made it to the end. There we have it. Liz Stringer, ladies and gentlemen. She is, in my opinion, one of the most talented people in Australia, I would say. If you ever get a chance to go and see her live um, solo uh, or, or listen to her music, um, I thoroughly recommend it. Um, so big thanks again, Liz, for having a chat for a couple hours there. And thanks to you people for tuning in. Once again, cheers to Advanced Production Engineering for hooking me up with this cool little microphone. Um, until next week, stay safe, stay alive. See you later. I want to go to you.